The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning. I offer welcome to you. Glad that you're here with us today. We're going to study now from God's Word, Psalm 51. We're going to look at verses 13 through 19. If you don't have a copy of the Bible under a chair in front of you, is a chair Bible. Uh, we're on page 474. And while you're looking there, I want to draw your attention, if you're a guest with us, to a Connect card on the back of the chair. You take the card, fill out the information on it, and you can place it in the offering plate at the end of our service. It's the only way we want you to participate is simply by placing the guest card there and letting us know that you're with us uh, today. We, we did have a great week of summer camp. I'll say a little bit about that later in the sermon. I also want to make sure if you did not see the email or notice the, the information in the info guide that Pastor Ben Francis and his family are going to be headed to Teresa Baptist Church in Roxborough, North Carolina. Those of you who don't know where that is, just north of Durham. Uh, he'll be headed there to be the lead pastor of that local church next Sunday after each worship service. Uh, there'll be a reception following each service where you can go by and speak to Ben and Tara and their family. We're grateful for them, grateful for Ben's ministry among us as a pastor and Tara as in so many ways that she has served throughout the life of the church family will be missed, but we know that God has much for them where they are headed and pastoring a, new, a, a local church there in Roxborough. We're grateful to God. We come today to Psalm 51, verses 13 to 19. I want to invite you, if you would now, stand as Joseph comes to read. Psalm 51, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let us pray. Oh God, how we need you. How we need you to open our eyes to the truth of your word. And to see your glory displayed here this morning, we desire that you would show up, Lord. Father, we, we come to you with broken and contrite hearts, with broken spirits over our sins, and we know that you will not despise us. So, Father, we are grateful for your grace and for your faithfulness toward us, and we pray that you would continue to show them as you are faithful to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 I begin with a quote. Let us remember that everything we do affects other people, whether for good or evil. 
That's a true statement. Everything that we do affects other people, whether for good or evil. But it is also true that those who confess their sin, find forgiveness and renewal, teach others the way of, ways of God, and become a blessing. Here's the main idea of this sermon today, that the Lord God graciously works through those who cry for mercy. There's definitely a shift in David's mentality from where we began four weeks ago. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we see that David's focus was on his own personal kingdom, not on the kingdom of Israel as he was the king, but on his own personal world where he takes another man's wife and commits adultery. And then to cover up his sin, he has that man killed or murders him. Then when Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him a story, which is really about him, he's so self-righteous and indignant that he says that person deserves to die. We can become a very selfish people and often exhibit this in our life as we become concerned about our own personal kingdom. But we see a major shift. In verses 18 and 19, David says, do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. We see a person who has shifted from his kingdom to God's kingdom, concerned about Jerusalem and what happens in Zion, the worship of God, that right sacrifices might take place. You see, right sacrifice is the concern of this final passage. We want to give consideration as we unfold it today. The first thing we want to see is that those who have received mercy proclaim the gospel. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Then, he says. For us to understand then, we need to go back and, and read, beginning with verse 1, as to what David is working from. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Before the then can happen, there must be an acknowledgement of sin, of transgression, of rebellion, of our guilt before God, and of our sinfulness. Verse 5, that we were brought forth in iniquity. Verse 6, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I've watched many people do this. You, you do something wrong in your life and you buy this religious lie that you can do some righteous acts in exchange for your sin. You can go to church more. You can give offerings. You can go on some kind of trip or serve somebody who's poor or help somebody to try to cover up what you've done. 
And what David's saying here, that's, that's, that's not what God desires from us at all. What God desires and must do is to purge us of our sin and to create in us a clean heart and give us a willing spirit. Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The joy of salvation being upheld by the power of the Spirit. That's the desire. So when you put all this together, when we acknowledge our sin and sinfulness, when we have a new heart, a willing spirit, with the joy of salvation, upheld by the Holy Spirit, then, and only then, I will teach transgressors your ways. I will have the right concern for other people, followed by the right method. Now this is very similar to what we discover in the Great Commission. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those of us who have been transformed and changed by Jesus Christ, each of us have been given a mandate, a mandate to make disciples, a mandate to teach all that God has commanded. It's the same principle that we find here in Psalm 51. When we have been set free from sin and we have been given a new heart, a clean heart and a right spirit, we now have a new desire and that is to make the gospel known. But we make it known in a very distinct way. We make it known from a God-centered perspective. We don't explain the gospel from our perspective. We explain the gospel from a God-centered perspective. When I used to be the youth pastor and I'd recruit new youth workers, I would sit down with them and I'd ask them a question. Why do you want to work with students? And I would often get this answer, which was going to be followed by questions. It would go something like this. I want to help young people avoid what I did. Now, that sounds extremely noble. Uh, and I've had many, many people say that to me. So I'd say, well, exactly what do you mean by that? You, you want to help them stay out of trouble. Do you want to be some kind of guide that helps kids avoid trouble? Well, kind of, yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of what you're talking about. I said, okay, did anybody do that for you? And they'll usually say, no. I say, come on. There had to be somebody in your life that was trying to tell you, don't do that. Well, you're right. Well, can I ask you a second question? How'd that work for you? It's as if that if we can tell a young person a bad enough story of how stupid we were, that they'll avoid it. It won't work. That's not how we teach transgressors. So what do you do then, pastor? You explain the gospel. You live the gospel. You display the gospel. And yeah, you tell your story. But you tell your story from a God-centered way. That it is God who saved me. It is God who cleansed me. It is God who made me whiter than snow. It is God who created in me a clean heart. Listen carefully what I'm going to say next. If you cannot explain the gospel to someone else, 
how can you declare that you believe that gospel? How can you believe something that is unclear to you? Somehow, somehow in the modern southern church, we've we got this nebulous sort of gospel that we're asking people to sort of believe. And once they sort of believe this sort of gospel, then they're once saved, always saved. We must believe the truth of the gospel, which is the truth about ourselves, that we are sinners separated from God, and the truth of Jesus Christ, who came the sinless Savior, who died on the cross, a sinner's death in our place, though he never sinned and he did not deserve it. He took our place on the cross and satisfied the wrath of God in our place. He died and was buried, and three days later he rose again from the grave, proving that he is Lord 1 Corinthians says that is the gospel according to the scriptures. The gospel is not simply, well, you know, God loves you. That's only part of it. The gospel is what Christ has come to do and what Christ has done in me and through me. So I tell this story from a Christ-centered perspective. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Look how closely this ties to Psalm 51. But you are a chosen race. By the way, up till this point in Peter, he's been explaining the gospel. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of who? Him. That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's something radical and transformational he's done to you. You tell that story, but you tell it from a God-centered perspective, that it is he who took you out of darkness and brought you in the marvelous light. It is he who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. It is he who sent his only son. It is God who loved us. It is Christ who died for us. Once you were not a people, verse 10, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received what? Mercy. But now you have received mercy. That's the whole point of Psalm 51, that you have received mercy. And the people who have received mercy teach transgressors his ways. They realize they've been saved by grace through faith, that it is not of themselves. They are people who live in the light, proclaiming the excellency of him who called you out of darkness. They're proclaiming the gospel. And when they do this, sinners will return to you. They will. They'll repent. They'll change directions. They'll follow the Lord. Why? Because you're an effective communicator? Because you're a winsome individual? Brothers and sisters, I want to challenge something. People say this, well, I'm scared to share the gospel. I might get it wrong. Okay, I go back to, if you understand that gospel to the point that it's transformed you and saved you, you got it. What you ought to be is scared not to share it. 
For a couple of reasons. One, it's a disobedience issue. Secondly, a person's soul is hanging in the balance. God says, you teach transgressors his ways, God's ways, and sinners will return to you. Why does that happen? It's because of the power of the gospel. For I am not ashamed, this is Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and all first for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, you might know in the next part, from faith to what? Faith. Here's how the gospel spreads. I believe the gospel. It is the power of God into salvation to me. And I proclaim the gospel. And when I proclaim the gospel, you believe the gospel. And it is the power of God into salvation to you. And look, here's what God does. Then God burdens your heart with it and, and, and enthralls your heart with the gospel. And you share the gospel. And from faith to faith. How will they know unless they hear? How will they? They will not. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. We make this gospel known. When you are changed by the gospel, I'll make an emphatic statement here. When you are changed by the gospel, you will declare the gospel to others. When you are changed by the gospel, you will declare the gospel to others and you will, you will proclaim it along with others. That's called praise. Leads me to the next part of the psalm. Those who have received mercy declare his praise. Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. So I'm going to take an excursus for a moment. For those of you, I'm about to get a little bit more technical than normal. Uh, if you get lost here, ask me questions after the sermon or text questions or send me emails, whatever. There are multiple ways people interpret what he says here, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Now, here's why this is a challenging part. If you work through the psalm, he's confessed his sin and called out for cleansing. And it, it appears that that's been solved and wrapped up. And then in the midst of this teaching transgressors his ways and praising God, he's inserted this phrase, deliver me from blood guiltiness. So what does it mean? So I'm, I, I'm, I'm there, like I said, there's six or seven different ways people interpret this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to limit myself to two things. Number one, the immediate context, the verses that surround it. I will teach transgressors in ways and sinners will return to you. If I go over to Acts chapter 20, you can just write this reference down and look it up later. If you go to Acts chapter 20, Paul is about to leave the Ephesian church and he's meeting with the Ephesian elders, and he says these words to them. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul's saying, because I'm faithful here to share the gospel, I don't have blood guilt for not sharing it among you. So I think that's, one possible meaning, I'm not convinced it's the meaning in Psalm 51, then why bring it up, Pastor? Because it is a meaning somewhere else in Scripture. In the immediate context, at least means I need to think about it. Now, if I take the overall context of Psalm 51, I look at all that's being said in Psalm 51, and he says, 
deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. That takes me to Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Christ alone is our deliverer. He alone is the source of our salvation. So every time you acknowledge your sin, you long for Jesus. It's not, as a Christian, that you're longing for the final sacrifice. That sacrifice has been paid. It is finished. So what is it that you're longing for? You're longing for daily deliverance from sin. Deliverance from your flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's an immediate cry. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. But it's also an eschatological or a cry for what is to come. Oh God, on that day when you come, deliver me from blood guiltiness. It's that final deliverance of glorification. So deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. I'm back to Psalm 51 now. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. So David has a personal knowledge of salvation that has been granted to him, deliverance been given to him by God. God is the author and finisher of his salvation. This gives him deep gratitude and joy. And as a result, he says, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And these three phrases, the repetition around the use of speech is obvious. My tongue will sing. It's not just going to sing. It's going to sing of your righteousness. This is to happen, O Lord. And the word here is master. Master, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. In Psalm 71, verse 23, he says, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. It's not just what's coming out of my mouth. And that's crucial that I'm out of my mouth. I'm singing of the righteousness of God, that God is opening my mouth to declare his praise. But that I'm singing from my soul. The soul which has been redeemed. Every one of you in this room, your heart is inclined towards something or someone. And you praise it. You praise it. You do it all the time. You may not be consciously aware of it, but you do it. You commend what is important to your heart. And for those who have been redeemed, their soul, through their lips, sings praises to God because we realize that we have been redeemed. We've been purchased from sin and death, that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been applied to our hearts and lives, that we experience it daily the deliverance of God. So we sing from our soul. And when we do this, we do it with a posture that is greatly impacted by the grace of God, which leads us to the third and final point. 
that those who have received mercy respond with a broken and contrite heart. Let's begin with verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So God is concerned with what's inside of us. With that in mind, we come to verse 16. For you do not, will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So Calvin says, A broken and contrite heart has been emptied of all vainglorious confidence and acknowledge he is nothing. The humble heart has no thought of dealing with God on the principle of exchange. You think you're doing something to exchange with God. Now this, this is, you hear a lot about legalism. Um, there's a lot of talk about legalism that really isn't a discussion about legalism because modern people don't want to obey God, so they call everything that has to do with obeying God legalism. That's another sermon. Okay? Legalism is when you obey God in exchange for something. So God, I read my Bible, so bless me. God, I gave today, so give me in return. Is that you're trying to do some kind of exchange with God. You're manipulating the hand of God by what you do. So David says... You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. What, what God desires right now is not David to come with an offering. And he's going to talk about offerings in verses 18 and 19. But here he's saying there's a deeper concern. The sacrifices of God, the sacrifice that God delights in, are a broken spirit. Literally a crushed spirit. A broken and contrite heart Oh God, you will not despise. So a broken and contrite heart, I read a minute ago, is emptied of all vain confidence. It's the very opposite of pride. This is the sacrifice that God will not despise. So here's the question. What breaks the spirit of pride? Answer. The need for mercy. This is back at the very beginning part of Psalm 51. As long as you're convinced you're okay. Or let, let, me, let, let me just go this far. As long as you're convinced you're not really a bad person. What you're saying to God is, God, aren't you proud of me? Because I'm proud of myself. Aren't you glad you have me as a part of your kingdom? I'm a pretty special person. I've lived for you my whole life. Hmm. God is opposed to the proud. James 4, 1 Peter 5. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the who? The humble. A broken and contrite Spirit, O oh God, you will not despise. So what breaks the heart of pride? The need for mercy. You know what else breaks the heart of pride? The application of mercy. When you recognize that only God can purge you, that only God can wash you and make you clean, 
That only God can take what has been broken and reset. Only God can create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. When I recognize that that is God's work and God's work alone, then it humbles me. Romans chapter 12. I invite you, if you would, to turn there. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul gives the most extensive and succinct explanation of the gospel and the implications of the gospel in one place in all of the Bible. After laying this great doctrine out, he comes to the application in Romans 12.1 and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. You could say sisters as well, brothers and sisters. Now listen, here's who he's talking to. He's talking to the people who have been transformed by the gospel. He's not talking to a general audience here. He's speaking to the believers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, By what? The mercies of God. That God has been merciful to us as sinners. That we have been recipients of God's mercy. So by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living what? Sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Now, how do I know what it looks like to be a holy and acceptable sacrifice? Psalm 51, 17. A broken and contrite spirit, you, O God, you will not despise. This is your spiritual worship. Now, some of you are more outward emotionally than others. I'm a partial in-between person. I show emotion at some times, but in the majority of my life, I don't show a whole lot. Sometimes I have tears in worship or prayer or tears at communion. Some of you have, but whether you actually have physical tears that roll down your eyes, I say this with conviction. The tears ought to be there whether they roll or not. So somebody texted this question last week. It's a great question, and I understand it. I'm not belittling your question at all. The question was, why does communion always have to be somber? It doesn't. But it should always be sober. I come to the table with joy that God has saved me. I come to the table with celebration, but I always come with a broken and contrite spirit. Because I didn't accomplish any of this. It's an awareness of my sin accompanied with the understanding of the gospel which has transformed me which leads to praise always with the tone of a broken spirit. Let me illustrate with a person from the Bible. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, this is after the death of Saul, and David is now king. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son, whom we know from the story 
of David's life, whom he loved Jonathan very much. And let me give you some history at this point in time in the world if you became the king of a people in this part of the world. If there had been any remaining family members of the opposing kingdom or the prior kingdom, you would eliminate all of those people. That means you'd kill them. You would do so, it was a very practical reason, so that they wouldn't try to rise up and take your kingdom. David discovers that Mephibosheth is alive, Jonathan's son, and he calls for him. Imagine, imagine you're Mephibosheth and you've been summoned by the king. I'm just going to sum up the story from 2 Samuel 9, verse 13. David welcomes and receives him, and it says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Why is that in the Bible? Particularly that last phrase. Now he was lame in both his feet. Why is it there? Well, there are a lot of reasons that you could assign. Let me give you one. Because Mephibosheth is me. And Mephibosheth is you. You see, you were an enemy of God. And while you were still his enemy, Christ died for you. He reconciled you through his blood, all who have trusted in Christ, and you now have been brought into relationship with the God of this universe. You have been redeemed by Christ. You are now his. And here's the miracle. Not only have you been made right with God, you now eat at the king's table. You're about to come to his table in a minute in a very physical way that he reminds you that you're invited to his table. Don't miss this last phrase. He was lame in both of his feet. It means he was a defective and damaged person. He couldn't have been the heir anyway. He couldn't have led his people into battle. People at this point in time like him were useless people. We know they're not. But that's how he would have been seen. Now you hear me. I'm lame in both my feet. The effect of sin plagues me day in and day out. Not only was I an enemy of God, I'm a defective person still. I'm still battling my flesh. And here's the miracle. I'm still at the king's table. That doesn't mean I have excuse to do what I want to do. I don't want to. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to battle my sin. Who will set me free? Thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
here's my final question to you. Is there clear evidence in me and through me that I have received mercy? Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. What was the cry? It was the cry for mercy. He drew me out from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song on my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. There's a shortened version of Psalm 51. That it is God alone who hears the cry of mercy, who takes us up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog that's holding us down. He puts our feet on the rock, who is Christ. He makes our steps secure moving forward. He puts a new song in our mouth and the song of praise to our God. And he uses this song to share it with others who will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So we see a cry for mercy that salvation belongs to him. The new song is for him and that many will see and fear. So brothers and sisters, last Sunday morning, the end of the service, I called on you to come and plead with me for camp. I wish you could have been there. God moved. God moved. I've kind of made it a practice in in, in my life of ministry not to keep counts of salvations. I think that leads to pride with preachers way too much. All I can tell you is multiple young people profess their need for Christ. Not one or two. Multiple. And let me tell you what the testimony of one of those young people was. Witnessing communion over the last several weeks brought the conviction to his heart that he was in need of Christ. What's happening here when we take communion? It's Psalm 51. Watch. This is 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. We're all betrayers. All of us. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as you often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So as we, as we, as we receive the bread, we remember that Christ, the incarnate Son of God, came, the sinless Savior, who, who was broken on our behalf. We were reminded it really happened. It transpired that he shed his blood for the remission of our sin. We do it to remember what he has done. But then verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is why only believers receive communion. We're making a proclamation that this is speaking to what's happened to us. That we have believed the gospel. We have been transformed by the power of the gospel. And we are proclaiming the sufficiency of the death of Christ on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. Now, 
while we do this, I just want to give you another picture as I think about praise and, and singing. I've been reading through the Minor Prophets this summer. I was just reminded of Zephaniah. And I just want to remind you what he says in Zephaniah 3 as you're about together to worship him through communion. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. Oh God, save people while we receive. May there be people like that young man who are crying out to Jesus, Lord Jesus, save my soul. I believe that you are the only way to salvation. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. He will exult over you in loud singing. I don't know about you, but that humbles me. How can I come knowing that's true without a broken and contrite spirit? Here's the principle of the psalm. My heart must be right for my sacrifice to be right. And my heart must be right with God through the power of Jesus Christ's gospel being applied to me for me to rightly come to this table. So who can come? All who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. You bring nothing. Nothing. All who recognize that in the receiving of communion, there's no saving power in what happens. It's a remembrance. It's all who are professing that the finished work of Christ has been accomplished and we are giving thanks for his saving work on the cross. So in a moment, servers are going to move throughout this auditorium. After I pray, you're going to make your way to one of those people. They, the closest person may be behind you. You'll take the bread and the cup. You'll return to your seat where you will consider and pray and give thanks and when you are ready, you'll take the bread and cup. Once you've done that, you'll join the worship team and congregation in singing praise. So I invite the servers, if you would, to make your place, find your place, so that people can see where you will be. Let's pray together. Lord, you say you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. We say this with David. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering for the sacrifice has been made. It is Christ the Lord. He is the offering in our place. So we come now to offer a sacrifice of praise with joyful yet broken spirits. And we give you thanks that your word is true, that a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. 
So may we come now with joyful, broken hearts and joyfully receive what you have given. We pray in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.